Awesome. Good morning. It's a blessing to actually be here with you guys. Last time I was here was empty chairs and I was talking to you through a camera and that was a very odd experience. Um, so I'm much, much grateful for the opportunity to meet together. I used to pray frequently. I'm sure we all did growing up. We thank the Lord for gathering together, but I don't take that for granted anymore. Um, so worship team, thank you for that, uh, especially that final song. It was a, it was a blessing. I felt definitely that... Um, it's in sync with what the Lord is going to be speaking through His Word this morning in Ephesians. So if you wouldn't mind, let's just pray to that end. Father, that, that declaration, Lord, this is what we believe because it's what you've set out for us. And Lord, that is the, the fundamental truths of our faith. And this morning, Lord, I pray that you would establish your church, your people, you would establish us in those things that we declare in our hearts that would be found, lived through our lives. We love you, Father, and we give you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as Ted mentioned, we'll be continuing our study through Ephesians. Um, Still a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. We won't be necessarily going through a Mother's Day topic, but... Trust in the Lord is still going to bless you in that this morning. Uh, Ephesians is one of my favorite books. I think anyone teaching always has to say those things, but it truly, it truly is. Uh, I've spent a good amount of time in there. I've been blessed by it uh, in every way. Uh, but we reach a, a critical moment in this letter, and I trust you guys uh, have gone through the last three chapters and you've gleaned tremendous truths in that. You've soaked it in because now the rubber is going to meet the road, if you will. It's, it's the action part of Ephesians. We're going to start moving based upon what we've heard over the last weeks and months of going through this letter. Uh, because it has to be understood that our faith, it, it's a response. Our faith, it, it's an action. And the Bible made it clear that God initially acted towards us. But there is a response then that's elicited from us. We love because he first loved us. It's this cause and effect. So our faith follows this, this law. For every action, there's an opposite equal reaction. If I can borrow from that, I think there's a spiritual uh, analogy that, that we can draw there. If we take the liberty. Uh, in the first three chapters, what Paul has done, he's bathed us in really what we sang this morning. Uh, the truths of our faith. He saturated us in the grace of God. He's established our hearts and our minds in the beauty of the gospel. You know, if you, if you want to summarize it that way, I could see that would be a fair, a fair summary. And so when we get to this chapter, um, we hit a therefore. We hit a transition. You know, the, the old adage when you come across that in scripture, when you study your Bible, I was taught early on, and as cliche as it is, it's never left me. Uh, when you reach a therefore, you always ask, what's it there for? You know, what? okay, therefore, I must, if we were sleeping, that should be our, our wake up. Oh, I should have been paying attention because now he's going to transition to something else. And I needed that foundation in order to build upon what's next. So it, it might be a good encouragement for, for many of us this morning, maybe later this week, to go back through chapters 1 through 3 and, and to try to grab the big picture, sometimes we can get lost and as we study through the details, which is, which is great, but when we tie it all together, he's doing it to bring us to this point. 
And sometimes it helps to see the end of someone's point when you can track through it and, and be able to see that you're, you're moving with him. So let me read uh, the first six verses that we'll spend our time there this morning. And we're going to slow right down through that um, and see if we can uh, receive what the Lord has from us there. So Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen? Amen. Therefore, he begins. He's laid the foundation of our faith. And now he's going to begin to build this call for us to live a holy life. And, and the true grace of God when understood, when received, when we're taking it in, it can't help but result in holy living. It's, it's that natural effect of what's going on. If God has caused us in His grace to be born again, and we receive it, it will effectually move through your life. If that's not an experience that, that you've had, I want to encourage you to go back into His Word. I want to encourage you to go back through one, two, and three, the chapters of this book, and just let it soak in, and let that move through your life. Because as we understand this, Paul is endeavoring to ground the church in sound doctrine. Um, I'm thankful for that song this morning, because sound doctrine is really what, what that was. I, I believe in all those things, the tenets of our faith, the, the, those core truths that God has declared. And when we have sound doctrine, we have sound living. Right? I don't mean that you're theologically correct. Right? I don't mean that you've got your systematic theology worked out in such a way that you can win every apologetic argument that you face. What I mean is that when sound doctrine, in its all its capacity and its truth, you receive it as it is and you don't deviate from it, that will result in sound living. It will result in a holy life. And, and what we believe must impact the way we live. It, it doesn't follow. If you say you believe everything that we said this morning, then your life should be lived in accordance to that. It, it has to line up. Perhaps that might be one of the greatest charges the world has against the church, is the hypocrisy. Sure, they use it as an excuse. But to the credit of that, that that's a true expectation. Your, your life should be exemplified or an example of what it is that you say you believe. And when those two things line up in the life of a believer, there's something incredible that marks the church, that marks your life individually. It sets you apart. It sets us apart, not because of who we are, but because who he is working in and through us. And so your life is moved by what you believe. You live by faith. And so as he, as he establishes that, he's saying, this is what I want to move towards, guys. I want to move towards this. I've set this before you. And I, he, he makes a personal involvement here. And, and I love it because Paul's pastoral heart is on display. He, he, he takes the, that, that first person 
step, as he writes to the church of Ephesus, he would have had intimate connection with them. And a shepherding heart there calls them to say, you know what, Paul's speaking to us. This isn't an abstract theological exercise. This isn't just um, some book to be shelved somewhere for me to draw upon every once in a while. This is an intimate plea of a pastor. This is an intimate plea of a friend, of a mentor, of a father figure. Paul's like, I am speaking to you. I am imploring you, he goes on. I, I find this important enough for me to spend time with you. And I know your spiritual health is of my utmost priority. That's what God's commission to him was. To, to build up and to make disciples. And he wanted to make sure they were healthy even when he wasn't present. And so he says, am I the prisoner of the Lord? And halfway through this letter, we may have forgotten that this letter was penned in a jail cell. Right? We, we get through it, and, and Paul's just in it. He's probably forgotten he's in a jail cell. He knows full well where he's at, but it, he's not letting that stop him. One of the prison epistles, he, he was confined in chains. Literally, his steps were limited to where he could go. But he doesn't see it as a hindrance to his walk. How, how, how challenging to us. I, the prisoner of the Lord, I'm calling you to walk in a way that's worthy. I want you to walk according to the calling that's been given to you. And if anybody had an excuse not to walk, it was Paul. He physically couldn't walk. But he knew that's not what the realm that he was called to walk in was about. He had a holy calling, and he was calling us alongside him. And this morning, I think that one statement, that one declaration from Paul, I, the prisoner of the Lord, for who it's coming from, it removes any excuse from us as to why we can't live a holy life. Oh, Kevin, you don't know, or you haven't seen this, or I'm really going... There's really, really no reason. No excuse for us. And he says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Implore is a very uh, strong word. Uh, perhaps a little bit of, it escapes us in the English. So I want to go back just to the Greek for a second to help us understand the heart behind what Paul is saying here. And we're going to do this a little bit throughout this section so I can draw it out and lay it before us this morning to, to get the gravity, to get the calling, to make it clear for us exactly what it is that the Holy Spirit's communicating. He says, I, Paul, you know, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Uh, the word here, if we pull it up, uh, it, it's parakleo. And if you want to break it down, it's made up of two parts. You've got the preposition, para, and you've got the second part of that word, pateo. Sorry, kaleo. We'll move on to that second part in a second. So para and kaleo. Para means from beside or alongside. And kaleo means to call aloud. So he literally was saying, I implore you, so I'm calling you alongside. I want you to walk with me. I'm exhorting you. I'm calling you alongside me. So para alongside, kaleo to call. And what a beautiful thing for us to do with each other. To exhort one another. Not to tell somebody what to do, but to call them alongside you. And so Paul in his prison cell, he wasn't calling them alongside his physical condition. He wasn't calling them to walk as he was walking in this world in a prison cell. He was calling them to walk as he walked spiritually. 
And you can only do that when you're in a position yourself, when you can call someone alongside you from a position of, uh, of healthy living before God. And so Paul gives this urgency. He gives this encouragement to say, I want, to, I want you guys to do this. I want you to walk. And again, going back to the original language here helps us to understand it a bit better. Uh, para pateo. Para meaning around and pateo meaning to walk. He says, I want you or I, I encourage you. I call you to walk around. I call, I encourage you to live this way. The word peri, like periscope, looking around, it's the circumspect sort of way of living. So he says, I'm calling you to a way of life, a, a, a totality, a wholeness. When I say to walk, I mean the way you live. And so taking those words apart a little bit, I'm hoping it gives you guys a little bit of a depth to what he's getting at here. He, he has a strong exhortation. He's calling them to live in implication to the entirety of their life in a way that's worthy of the calling that they've received. And when you think of something that's worthy, it really means something that's matching a value. Something that is suitable. Something that is fit. And so in order to do this, to live worthily or to walk in a way in every part of our life, in order to answer the charge that Paul is giving us, I think we have to understand the calling if we're able to walk worthy of it. And we have to understand the calling. You have to understand who's doing the calling and what it is that they're calling you to do. In, in that sense, then we can match our life up to it and say, okay, what is our life to look like in light of who it is that's called me? In light of what it is they're calling me to do? And the significance of that calling is only intensified when we understand who we are and where we were when we were called. So in other words, comparing God and his call to holiness and us and our depravity, when you hold those things in contrast to each other, it intensifies our calling. It, it, it highlights the magnitude of what Paul is charging us with here. And you could say that Ephesians 1 through 3 was the Holy Spirit reiterating that calling to us. It was uh, God showing who he was and what he did and what he's calling us to do. That song that we sang this morning, it was, it was, that's what we're called to live in light of. And 4 through 6 now is, is pushing us in. The Holy Spirit is desires for us to see us live out what we heard in 1 through 3. So it's fundamental that, that first we heed the call. And that we understand that our life that we live must coincide with it. So we've got Paul as an apostle in chains. You've got him exhorting us as the church. We've received the calling in one through three. And Paul says, guys, boys and girls, church, I want you to live a life that matches what God has done for you. I want you to live a life that lines up with the depth of your faith. You see, we began this morning with, uh, with a call to prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, looking at Paul's entry prayer. Then we did a Bible reading on his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, and we ended with, I want you to know how, how deep, how wide, how, how, how big is the love of God. I want you to understand it, that you'd be filled up to the fullness of God. That was Paul's prayer. So if you want a beautiful outline of Paul's heart of his letter, read those prayers again. 
Go back in chapter 1 and grab his heart and God's heart in, in that first opening prayer. Grab his prayer again at the end of chapter 3. And then you see what his intention is, what his hope for us is. So that we could be filled to the fullness of God. Well, why? Just to sit still at home in a church? To live like the rest of the world does and not do anything with it? You see, when we're filled up, we have the ability to live like we're going to live or like we're going to be called to live here in a second. Because holy living isn't about uh, a legalistic way of, of living your life. Because if that's the case, you're drawing from an empty well. But his prayer was that chapters 1, 2, and 3 would, fill, would have filled you guys up. And from that filled up life, then you can live a holy life. You'd have a deep well to draw from. And it would be something that would be of um, just an overflowing expression of what it is that you believe. So he says, I want you to live worthily of this calling. Ephesians, in a sense, is a progression. He seated us for the first half. In the second half, he wants us to walk. So he seated us in heaven, and now he wants to walk it out here on earth. And that's a beautiful description of your life, of my life here, is it not? There is this reality that we understand that's deeper than what we see. But the thing is, we still have to live life here on earth. But we have these truths that are anchored in heaven that, that, that pull us on, that allow us to live in such a way that honors God here. Sometimes it's a conflict. How do I live in this God-forsaken world that's underneath His wrath that, that is completely contrary to Him? It can be draining. It can be difficult. Those tides can pull hard. But when we're anchored in such a way where we understand we have sound doctrine, we're full, we're immovable in a sense, not because of our legalistic push to be holy, but because we're filled up with the goodness of God and His Word. And we can live in a way that we walk rightly here on earth. And so this theme of walking, it's going to carry on through the next three chapters. He begins here, I want you to walk worthy. And then he's going to move into verse 17. I want you to walk no longer as the Gentiles. And then chapter 5, verse 1, I want you to walk in love. Then chapter 5, verse 8, walk as children of light. And then chapter 5, verse 15, be careful how you walk, speaking walk with wisdom. So you can say that there is a direction that Paul is taking us in this morning. He wants us to be aware that we're to live our life in a very specific way. And then he opens up to us throughout the rest of the letter that the grace of God should impact every area of our life. And so as you go through the rest of Ephesians, you're going to see that he's going to touch on life in the church. He's going to touch at life in the world. He's going to touch at life in marriage, in family, in the spiritual realm. It's a beautiful letter. For us as children of God, as, as disciples, as followers of Christ, this letter is, is an outline, a, a direction of how we can and how we should live our life. As we walk, there are, are certain character traits, certain attributes that should be evident in our behavior, in the way we interact. It's really the fruit in the life of the believer. It should be seen. It should be a natural. As natural is that the orange come from the orange tree or, or, or the banana come from the banana tree. It's the analogy that Scripture draws from over and over again. So he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk 
How am I going to walk? In a manner worthy of the calling which you have received. This calling is holy. I need to walk in such a way. And what does that look like? In in verse 2, he says, With all humility and with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And so sometimes it gets a bit abstract for us. Walk holy. Okay, what does that look like? Um, a little bit beyond that is sometimes we get, uh, as a Christian, we're like, how, how, God, what are you calling me to do? What am I should be doing in this life? At the very fundamental level, if we're looking for direction, let's just start here. This is enough for us, I think, to be focused on, and God can direct our steps uh, beyond this. It, it looks like this. It looks like humility. It looks like gentleness. It looks like tolerance, patience. He begins with saying, with all. So to leave no doubt, he wants us to understand that the attributes he's going to give to us, he wants that to be found in every aspect of our life, in complete totality, in wholeness. Every corner, every area, even the difficult ones, he says, I want your life to be found worthy and to be lived in this way, with all humility. The idea of humility is having a, a deep sense of our own moral littleness. That's a tough one, considering I think many of us, if not all of us, are prone to pride. Um, Whether or not we'd like to admit it, perhaps not admitting it is probably the sign that there is pride there. But the idea is, he begins probably where it's most fitting. You need to humble yourself. And humility should be in every aspect of your life. Living with lowliness of mind. You know, not in this idea of self-deprivation, right? Not an idea of walking around in depression of, whoa, I'm a horrible individual. You know, there, there is an ungodly sense of uh, humility that's not being put forward for us here. This lowliness is something that can only be rightly achieved when we're seen in the light of God, right? So it's not this self sort of you know, beating myself down to the ground thinking and putting myself here in a forceful way and, and walking with a cloud over your head. This is not the humility that we see in Christ. This is not the humility that we see that God calls His church to walk with. This humility will come as a natural effect of you exalting and seeing Christ lifted up as He is and Him shining His light through His Word into your heart, exposing, yes, the sin, the weakness, the fallibility, of our own lives, but at the same time, there's this building up that Christ does, right? So he doesn't leave us there. Christ says he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So there's an element where when we bow ourselves down, God lifts us up. And so there, the, the, the person walking in humility walks with the sense of grace as well. There's not this heaviness upon this individual because they're walking in humility that keeps them low. God says, that person who humbles himself before me, I will lift them up. It's almost as if water always flows to the lowest place. And when water flows somewhere, if you think about uh, something that floats, if it's at the bottom of a, a bathtub or a ravine, whatever picture you want to use, that water begins to, to lift it up. So though you've humbled yourself, God's grace begins to bring you up in, in, in a beautiful way. Um, and so the idea of humility, make sure that when you, when that desire is in our hearts, the place isn't for you to begin by beating yourself up. 
the place is to begin by having Christ sat at, sat at, the, at the rightful place on the throne and for you to be before him. And he'll expose, he'll expose that which is in your life that needs to be exposed. But he'll also at the same time do what he does in giving us grace. And so I want you to walk with all humility, he says. And the second, he says gentleness. And, and that word gentleness for me is always helpful to understand as meekness. Um, gentleness, sometimes we think of this feather and it's just, you know, just weak. Um, but this gentleness here is this idea of meekness, walking with the strength and power in reserve, not necessarily exerting it at every opportunity, but walking in that confidence really here that the, you're walking in the power of God, yet you're not having dominion over others with it. You're called to pursue this idea of meekness. It's not natural for us. It's not natural for us. You see, we, we walk with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We walk as children of God. We walk with the power of God in our hearts. And again, we look back to Christ, how he lived in such a way that he could call down legions of angels. But he was meek. He was gentle. He touched with kindness. All the power in the universe, in, in, in omnipotence. Yet he kept it in reserve. And so this idea of meekness is something for us as as believers to understand the power that's within you is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's the power that works within us to live in holiness in this life. But it's also incumbent upon us to walk with the sense of meekness and gentleness, not lording over anything in this life. Um, These attributes, again, they're, they're they're not natural to us. If we think they're just going to come... We're, we're sorely mistaken. First uh, Timothy chapter six, verse 11 says, but flee from these things, speaking of, of evil things that proceeded in, in this, in that chapter, you man of God and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance and gentleness. You see, the things that come natural to us, we've got to run away from. Those are the things that are, that, that are easy for us to indulge in. If we let ourselves just passively sit by, we're going to be drawn into those things that are not God-honoring. And so while we're running away, we have to make the, the physical, moral effort to push ourselves out of those situations intentionally, and we've got to run towards the things that we're called to. We have to. Just like when you're at the beach and you're on the tide, and the tide begins to move you a certain direction, you've got to make that intention to stay upon where you want to be on the, on the sand. Otherwise, you're going to drift. And so when you're wondering where your your moral capacity is to walk in humility, to walk with gentleness, if you're not intentionally running after it and away from those other things, you're not going to be able to to live that life. And of course, it's by his grace that he's going to be able to give us the strength to do that. And both of these attributes are on display for us in the character of Jesus himself. When he expresses us to himself in, uh, in Matthew chapter 11, 20, verse 29, he says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I want to say that this is the only, if not one of a very few places where, where Jesus gives him a self-description. And the attributes he chooses to give himself are... Exactly what we have on display for us here. I'm humble and I'm gentle. 
Very interesting. In essence, what Paul is exhorting us to do here when he's saying with all humility and with all gentleness, simply put, he's saying, I want you to walk like Jesus. You want to look at this on display? Just go back to the life of Christ with intentionally looking at the humility that he walked with, the gentleness that he walked with. And if we're going to aim to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, a child of God, we have to walk in the footsteps of our master. You can't follow without going after where he went, with with taking the steps that he took, with going to eat with people that he ate with, spending time with people that he spent time with. Keeping in reserve when you're wronged, as he was wronged. You want to see what that looks like? Go back there. A challenge, that's for sure. But if you weren't challenged enough yet, I think the next attribute that we're called to live in will definitely put, put, us, uh, it will put us out. He says, I want you not only to live with all humility, with all gentleness, but I want you to do this with patience. So this fruit of gentleness and humility in our life, if it's found in the Spirit, it's not going to be short-lived. Right? Maybe I can be humble on Sunday morning when I come here for the hour and a half to two hours I'm here. But that's it for me for the rest of the week. <laughs> I'm, I'm out. I, I, I've drained all my resources. But that's enough because I can show to you guys that I am humble and I'm gentle. I was able to do it for two hours if I'm lucky. But if there's no morning tea today, I'm going to be a bit grumpy now. And I don't know if I'm going to make it the full two hours, maybe the hour and a half. Um, I'm kind of at the end of myself. But that's if we find it in ourselves. We're challenged now to recognize that this humility and this gentleness, it's to be done with long-suffering. And if that's the case, then I'm truly undone. Because this gentleness and humility that's long-suffering, then if that's the case, it can only be found in the person of Christ. It can only be found by the power of the Spirit. And it's born there. We have to exercise patience. Again, I'm going back to the original language here, and I'm going to mess up this pronunciation because I'm not a Greek scholar, but I love getting the definitions from these words because they help me, and hopefully they help you pull out really what's, what's going on here. It's, it's macrothumia. Macros meaning long, thymos meaning patient or anger. Put together, it's long passion or long suffering, meaning you've waited Waited and waited and you endured before you react. You're not going to blow up prematurely. You've been tempered. You've been divinely regulated, I'd like to put it. There is a time and a place where there is a response demanded. And we see Christ uh, express that, let's say, in, in, in the flipping of the tables in the temple. There comes a time and a place for us to react. Um, or to respond, rather. It's not reactive. We're responding to situations and we're regulated by the Holy Spirit. Our emotions don't have control of us. Our flesh doesn't have dominion. If you've got a temper, this is a challenge for us here to put it in check. If you've got pride that's boiling up, let the Holy Spirit deal with you. Because it's worthy of the calling that you've received. And you have the grace to be able to accomplish that calling by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you to exercise in all area of your life, humility. Brother and sister, are you there? All area of your life with gentleness. Parents, this is huge for us. 
Mothers, thankfully, naturally more so gifted that way, but it's huge for them as well. We fail. We fail on Sunday mornings rushing to get to church. We fail. Lord, give me long-suffering. Help me to walk with meekness and with gentleness. And then he reaches this point and he says, showing tolerance. So combining humility, combining gentleness, and combining patience allows us to be able to achieve tolerance with one another. Again, the tolerance, this word here, anekomoinai, uh, sorry about that, saying this idea of bearing up underneath. So when you tolerate someone, it's going to be difficult. The word here says you need to bear up underneath it. Even after the time needed has passed for you to put up with it, you're going to put up with it even more. And you're going to continue to do that. And you can only tolerate someone or a group of people if you're walking with humility and gentleness, with patience. Then you can bear up underneath that person who's really annoying today. Or that person that's really come after you. That persecution, that enemy. Go down the list. And being around people for any length of time, I don't have to stand up here and preach to you that this is challenging. In the church, we come from all walks of life. Culturally, education, demographically, experience, maturity, age. It's ripe for the opportunity for us not to get along. And unfortunately, it happens more often than we care to admit. But it's a tremendous testimony when within the church there is tolerance for each other. Because really, in, in all intents and purposes, in the world, there might not be any reason for you to hang out with this person. They would never cross your path. And they might not be someone that you would normally get along with, Personality conflicts, whatever the case might be. But the Spirit of God indwelling us allows us to walk with each other in such a way that we can tolerate. We can tolerate one another in the sense of I'm not just putting up with them, but I'm walking with them in long suffering. And I have to do this in love. Right? This motivation for this tolerance, it needs to be rooted in love. It needs to draw from a deep and rich understanding of the love of God towards us. This word love here, to tolerate in love, is drawing from the word agape. This unconditional love. Not this emotional, not this sort of familiar love. He's taken us all the way to that unconditional love of God. And it's the well that we're to draw from as we look and we interact with those around us. It's the love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13, where love is patient, love is kind. Love doesn't boast. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. Love never fails. Walk in humility with gentleness. With patience. Tolerating each other. In love. That's the key. Without that, you've got nothing to do that with. You've got nothing to draw upon. Love never fails. We can't hope to, to live this life in such a way out of duty, out of obligation. You cannot. Try to force my kids to get along. You can't. You can't, you can't force it out of obligation. 
as much as you want and you sit them next to each other, you're not going to do it. But when you draw upon the deep sense of their love for each other, you're getting somewhere. They love each other. That's the motivation that's going to allow them to overcome whatever they did to each other in that moment. This morning for us, I'm speaking to us as the church. There might be differences sitting here. There might be difference for us in the church down the street that we just look at them odd every time we go by. Let love. Let love be that motivation. And you'll find that you're not going to be frustrated as you would have been if you just did it out of a duty. You won't, be, you won't feel defeated. And he moves forward. He says, guys, I, I want you to walk in such a way and I want you to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. I want you to eagerly endeavor. I want you to be fervent about this. And Paul in his mind knows the, the significance uh, of holding fast, of guarding, of maintaining, of, of keeping intact our bond with each other. You know, sadly today, the testimony is that, that we often not only do not guard the unity, sometimes we contribute to the division. We, we are infighting, we destroy each other, we actively participate in ripping apart the body of Christ. And there's a supernatural effort that we have to engage in in order to move away from the natural tendency to divide. I think it is natural for us to divide. It's natural for us to live in a divisive way. And if we allow sin to reign, we're going to go the way of entropy. I'm borrowing from another law. Everything wants to move from organization to chaos. Everything always wants to move in that way. So we sitting here this morning, if we're unified in the Spirit of God, it's a testament to the Spirit of God moving in us that we're sitting as one mind, one heart, in one spirit together. Because that's not natural. Naturally, it wants to fall apart. The flesh wants to divide. It wants to exalt self. When you exalt self, pride enters in, and there's rife for division. He says, I want you to be diligent to preserve this, because it's very, very important, for lack of a better way to put it. And this unity of the Spirit is something, again, that's supernatural. And this unity, I don't want us to, to get it twisted. I mentioned churches down the street and things like that. It's not an ecumenical sort of approach that, that calls us to compromise sound doctrine. We began with sound doctrine. Paul established us in sound doctrine. So don't mistake my words when I call your unity, call you to unity or call you to love or call you to walk in tolerance. We're not compromising sound doctrine. We're not going to bend every conviction until our faith is reduced to this marshland where we can no longer find firm footing of the gospel to stand on. That's not the kind of unity that God is calling us to do. That, that, that's detrimental. We're not doing this for the sake of pleasing the world just to show a face of, of quote-unquote tolerance. Um, in fact, at this point, I'll, I'll urge us today, with the world pushing... Uh, further and further into the church, calling us to adopt the, the thinking of the world and calling us to, to have this face uh, of tolerance to different systems of beliefs, different lifestyles. To accept that for the sake of unity is not glorifying to God. Becoming a part of the woke movement in the church, it's not glorifying to God. We're not unifying on those points. We're unifying on the point of God. And we'll come to that head here in a moment. I just wanted to put that out there. He says, unity of the spirit this unity we found in our surrender to god alone where his children who are called to walk in a way that we've just described overcome the divisions that are natural to our carnal self 
Sadly, that I believe one of the greatest threats to us is not so much the external forces that I just mentioned, but, but the internal threats of division. And it's no wonder why Paul exhorts us in such a way, because he understands the strength that's held when we're united in one mind and one heart and one spirit. I think the attack from within is always greater than the attack from without. And if we're going to stand in these days, especially these days that we live in, let's take heed to this call. Let's understand this and live it out. Because I want you to walk in unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is this bond of peace? Again, we go back to love because love is the perfect bond of unity. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, it says this. So as those who have been chosen of God, that's the church, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. There's our words. Bearing with one another, bearing up, tolerance, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. Hmm. So also should you, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There's the calling. There's the living. There's the love. And there's that bond of peace. And when there's the fruit of love born of the Spirit, peace is going to accompany that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, singular. Then it follows joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You have all those things moving out. So when the fruit of the Spirit is moving, sorry, when the Spirit of God is moving and the fruit of love is on display, that love is that bond. And that bond of peace will be present. There will be peace in the church when the Spirit of God is indwelling you and you're living in the Spirit and you're walking in step with the Spirit and fruit becomes present for all of us to see and enjoy and to walk with each other. And um, these last couple of verses, what, what Paul does here, this call to unity now is emphasized by this call to what, the oneness, what, what I'm going to call the oneness of our faith. He underscores this. And he solidifies in our heart that we're to walk as one by simply saying this. He says, look, I'm calling you to walk this way. In verse 4, why? There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So when I say oneness, I think you guys know what I'm talking about. One, one, one. One. Paul starts with likening the church as, as a body. A familiar, I'm sure a familiar uh, description to many of us here this morning. He takes it a little further in, in chapter 5 uh, by setting up Christ as the head of the body. And again, he opens it up uh, further into this chapter in, in verses 12 and 13 where he says, we're all parts of this body and God's given us these uh, gifts in certain individuals uh, as pastors, teachers, evangelists to be able to build this body up to be able to be one in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, it says, we've been given gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. The idea of oneness is, is, is on full display for us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul opens up the idea that we are all individual parts of a larger body. 
And if we're all parts of one body, then it's fitting for us to work together to that end. And it's fitting for us that Paul slots that chapter on the body of Christ right before the chapter on love. So 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking that we're all one body, that you're all different, that we're all gifted, that we're all called. One's a nose, one's a toe, one's a finger, one's a mouth, one's an ear. Yet each gifted with its own capacity. Why? Not so we can be separate from each other. Can, can this part of the body say it's separate from that part? Absolutely not. So we come in together as one under the headship of Jesus. You see, division is a thing that's magnified when it's found where it shouldn't be. It's something that, that's horrendous and its nature is seen when it's found somewhere where it should be found the least. God hates division. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, and in verse 19, he says this, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And then he jumps down, and in verse 19, this is one of the things that's on the list. A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. One who causes division. That's something that the Lord hates. On the other end, God loves unity. Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. Even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. God, God is blessed when we walk in unity. That anointing oil coming down on the, the beard of Aaron. One body and then one spirit, he goes on, namely the Holy Spirit. I found early in my walk with the Lord that the role in the ministry of the Spirit of God seemed to be a very controversial topic in the church. I remember my time studying through the Word. This must have been early, early 20s, somewhere around there. And I had a very interesting upbringing in the faith in terms of theology and whatnot. I was kind of all over the shop, not, not being able to ground myself in the Word. But coming back to the Word of God and finally being grounded there... Um, I found the Holy Spirit was the place where unity should be found. Wherever I looked, the operation and role of the Spirit of God in the church seemed to be a point of, of great division. And I, found it, I found it strange. You know, because the Holy Spirit, truly, if you look at it, the Holy Spirit is the one who indwells us at regeneration. He's the one who marks us and sets us apart in sanctification. And He's the one who seals us unto the day of glorification. And so if you look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, He's there from beginning to end. He's there at salvation. He's there at sanctification. He's there at glorification. Uh, and if you and I are saved by the same Spirit, we're set apart by the same Spirit, and we're marked by that same Spirit, then for us to walk in division to one another, it's, it's contrary at best. How can there be d- division in the body if that's the case? So we walk in one Spirit. The same Spirit that's in you is the same Spirit that's in me. One hope, there's an expectation that you and I share. There's an expectation that we share in common with the church around the world, the church in Africa, the church in India, the church in, in, in the Middle East, the church in the Americas, the church wherever. There's a hope that, that binds us together that we're both looking forward to. 
This hope in Colossians 1.27 is this hope that's in us. It's the hope of glory. It's Christ in you. And what we're looking forward to, is just in a few quick bullet points, this hope that you and I share that unifies us on that one focus. Because if we're all looking at the same thing, we're going to be going the same direction. If we're looking to one end, we're going to track together to that end. So firstly, we have a hope that's alive. In 1 Peter 1-3, through 3, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a hope that won't let us down. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. We have a hope that secures us. Hebrews 6, 19. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil. And we have the same hope that's eternal. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied, saying that our hope goes beyond this life. One faith, sorry, one hope, one Lord. There's one head that we submit to. And our obedience must be given to him alone. If Christ be our Lord, and he is, and I submit to him alone, I cannot give allegiance to anyone else. And so you and I together this morning, there's one thing that you can commit to, one thing that I can commit to, is not committing to be unified together to each other. If we do that, we're, we're, we're going to fail. It's, it's not committing to walk with you, with you, with you. I'm going to get along with you. I'm going to walk in step with you because inevitably it's, it's not going to happen. Rather, if you can agree to set your heart on the Lord... And you can agree to set your heart on the Lord. And I can agree to set my heart on the Lord. And we both can walk in that direction. When we converge on that point, we're not looking around at each other to walk in unity together. Rather, we're walking in step with God. So if you're in step with God and I'm in step with God and they're in step with God, we're walking together in unity. And so when, we, when we're allowing our focus to be Him as our Lord, so when the Lordship of Christ is established in, in each of our lives individually, and it's established in our life as a church. Unity is going to follow. Because God will never contradict. God will never move us away from that. And in a marriage, husband and wife, let the Lord be your God. Let the Lord be her God. You're not going to get along trying to, trying to do this. If you submit to the Lordship of God and she submits to the Lordship of God, and he's your master, and he's her master, there's unity in the marriage. And there's unity in the home. Problems begin to happen when one or both move out, and they no longer see Christ. They no longer have that one Lord. Uh, I suspect many of our problems can be found there if we simply commit to that, knowing that we can't serve two masters. We have to follow after him. And to the extent that we do that, we'll be united. To the extent that we don't, we'll be divided. Simple, but it's, it's a true principle of our faith. And we have one faith. It's a singular saving faith. He's going on the one, 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 one. It's, it's the only route that we are to be found pleasing the eyes of God. God is pleased not by anything else but our faith. And we've received the gift of God by faith. But in this case, this unifying factor here isn't so much your individual faith or my individual faith. 
how strong your faith is, how, how great your faith is, how little my faith is. That, that's not the factor we're to be united on. What's united on here, this faith we're talking about, is this system of, of belief that's been established, right? The, this idea of um, who God is and what he's done for us. What we sang about, again, the entry song. That's the faith. That's the belief that you and I have. We have one faith, not to be um, altered in any way. It was once for all handed down to us. It was passed on, and we're to hold on. There's to, there's to be no divergence. Some say orthodox. Some say fundamental. Those words have connotations that can lead you in different directions. One faith. That's true. I'll just call it the truth. Um, Jude tells us that it's something that we have to contend for. Because there's people that are coming in that will distort it. That will cause divisions among it. So when we have that one faith, know it's something that we're fighting for. And today now more than ever, we've got to fight for that. We've got to contend for that. We've got to hold fast that faith that was passed on to us. And there's one baptism. This baptism, uh, that's something that we would all have undergone. It's something that we all would have passed through from death to life. It's the, it's the mark of the church invisible, right? I'm not talking about the physical baptism where, where we have those demonstrations of something that's taken place. I'm literally talking about the moment that you put your faith in Christ. The moment that you were born again. You were baptized into the likeness of the death of Christ. You were raised into the newness of life. That moment that you believed. That's what the church is comprised of. Whether or not there's full immersion, whether or not someone's ever been baptized. Nobody can be born again. Unless they die. This baptism has to be something that is undertaken. And in a way, the church is exclusive in that sense. It, it's unique to those that have passed through that baptism. It's exclusive in the sense that Jesus said, I am the one way. We're going to kind of bring it to a landing at this point where Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There is an exclusivity to our faith that many try to fault Christianity with. And and we cannot deny that God has said, this is the way. We cannot deny that God has said, this is the life. We cannot deny that God said, this is the truth, because whatever is not truth demands to be false. It has to be. Today, logic seems to fail us in the secular world when we go out because we've thrown it to the wind. Nobody can figure out who they are anymore. But our faith grounds us back into the truth. Yes, there is an exclusivity to it. There is a oneness to it. But there also is a tremendous inclusivity in it. John 3.16 perhaps being one of the more pinnacle verses for us to draw from. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Opening up salvation to the entire world. Despite whatever circumstance or situation or background they might have come from, there's a oneness opened up to the entire world. And Jesus said, I am that, that way to the Father. And Paul ends this opening section here with, there's one God and Father who's over all and through all and in all. Coming back to this Lordship, coming back to us recognizing that God is sovereign when I read, read that section, I recognize the sovereignty of God, but I also recognize his intimacy. He is over all. 
Yes, he, he is. He's, but he's also through all and he's also in all. So yes, he's over it, but he's also in it. He's Lord, but he's also walking with us. He's among us. And then he goes on to talk about the gifts of the church. But this morning as we wrap it through, we're coming back to this idea of us walking in a manner worthy of the call that we've been called with. That's where we started. I hope you didn't get too, too bogged down along the way. But you've been called. You understand the calling. Walk worthy of it. This is how you should walk. Patience and humility. In gentleness, in love, showing tolerance for one another. Because we have a oneness that we're to be about. That sets us apart as the church that's opened up to the entire world. So I want you to walk worthy of this call. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So perhaps the fitting question for you this morning for me to end on is simply this. Have you been made alive by the Spirit of God? That question is the affirmative. Do you walk in Him? It must follow. If it's the negative, well, I pray this morning that would change. That you would receive the tremendous gift that God has given us in His grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for sound truth. We thank you for love. Lord, that you showed us what that was. That it's that love that calls us. It's that love that moves us, rather. To demonstrate that in our lives to each other here. So I pray this morning that to the individual hearts that are sitting, Lord, that first and foremost that you would magnify yourself and your love in their hearts. And I trust and I know that then that would be the catalyst or the cause to the effect of their life being lived holy before you. Thank you for the time here this morning, Lord. Um, Forgive us, God, for walking in a manner that's not worthy. And I trust that your grace is more than sufficient for us to uh, bring ourselves back in line this morning. So my prayer is that you would again fill us with your spirit. Lord, it said that, uh, yeah, we were, we were saved. We were, we, we were indwelt by the Spirit of God, but there's a filling, Lord, that, that we must continually look to you for to be walking in. So I pray this morning that you would fill us as Paul prayed to the fullness of the knowledge of you, that we would overflow again in our life, at work, in the parking lots, on the freeways, on the tolls, in our families, in our marriages, we've been failing, Lord, forgive us. This morning, Lord, would you move in those areas of our life where we need to live in such a way that matches what we say we believe. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we want to worship you now. Amen.